0: Welcome to today's podcast. Today we have a special guest, a magical guest, I would say. A mutual friend recently introduced me to Tiffany McKelvey. And in her own words, Tiffany helps the all grown up but still very lost children of toxic families find their way home to their most embodied authentic selves. Tiffany has some wonderful content on inner child and it has a very compelling voice so tiffany thank you for joining me today i'm really really excited to have you on the podcast
1: i'm excited to be here thank you for having me
0: uh i want to start off with like i start off with a lot of our guests tell me how you got into this work where what what brought you into the work that you're doing in psychotherapy and and also on your social media with inner child work
1: yeah um so i think what got me into this work is doing it for myself. And I think that that's true for a lot of folks who are in this line of work. Um, And I think it started for me specifically when in 2015, I chose to um, stop drinking and get sober. And so in that process, I realized how much I was masking and how much I was, you know, dissociating and medicating. And it really, forced me into a position where I had to do a lot of my own soul searching, inner child work. Um, and so that process opened a door for me to really dive deep into this work. Um, on top of that, I was in, a, um, in an MSW program, which, of course, holds a mirror up constantly and right. um, And I was also in an herbalism program. And both of those programs really challenged me to look at the ways in which my mind and my body were um, responding to a lot of the programming I received when I was really young and how that programming was creating these patterns that I was really stuck in. Um, So in doing the work for myself and in really seeing the ways in which my clients were also stuck in these similar loops, um, that's how I started to really focus on this inner child niche. Um, because I do think that it's the key to a lot of our challenges and the key to solving them.
0: Did you did you have a a therapist, a professor? Was it a book that turned you on to it? Was your own innate instincts that kind of pulled you into realizing that that was going to be a driving force in your work?
1: So I had um, I've had a bunch of amazing therapists. Um, the initial one I would say who like kind of left the twinkle for me to start this work. Her name is Gina. She's amazing. Um, She was the one who who looked at me one day and was like, why do you put everybody else on a pedestal? But you think that, you know, you think so poorly of yourself. And Mm -hmm. that statement in and of itself made me really look back at my childhood and be like, why do I, why do I do that? What am I looking for in these other people that I can't find in myself? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had another mentor. Her name is Karen Rose. She's incredible. Um, She had me, like I said, I'm an herbalist. She had me work with a plant. Um, She had me work with dandelion, which is a truth speaker as a, as a plant. Um, And, and also that childlike nature of the dandelion, you make a wish on her. Right. And, and that's that energy. So in, in working with that plant, I really deeply connected with all of the things my child self wanted and needed. Um, I started drawing again. I started writing again. I started dancing again. Mm-hmm. And in those activities, I could feel the chemical shift in my body and things were coming to the surface that really needed my attention. Right. So between Gina and Karen and my now therapist, Peter, like I, I have an incredible support team. Um, so, yeah.
0: Did you, you, you always, all these questions, you know, you can choose not to answer them if they're not good questions for you, but what strikes me about what you're describing is that you have a real, um, affinity for spirituality, for symbols, for, for metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have, is that part of of the background that you came with? Is that something that you developed in, 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 kind of in, in coming out of your background? Did you grow up in a spiritual family in a family that, that, um, had a, had a certain paradigm or invited this, this kind of sensibility that you're so, That you so easily voice, so naturally voice?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's a great question. I did grow up in a religious household, which I would differentiate from spiritual. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my dad's, uh, my biological dad's side of the family was very Catholic, and that was something that I think informed a lot of the programming that I was getting when I was very young. But then I also have another dad, um, and his family was very spiritual. Um, They are from Long Island. They are indigenous people from Long Island. And that kind of like energy around like connecting with our environment like every time I think of that home, I think of the plants that were there and the hours Mm -hmm. spent outside with them. And just the energy of that space for me is where I find my sanctuary, my inner sanctuary. And so I really think that that spirituality comes from connecting with my grandparents and their spirits and their spirituality. Um, And then as I've grown, um, I've sought out other avenues to connect with my roots and my spirituality. So, you know, Karen, who is my herbalism teacher, she's Guyanese. My mom is Guyanese. So that was a really great way for me to do some mother wound healing and to really Mm -hmm. connect and get some mentorship there. Um, and then I have, you know, a spiritual mentor. Um, his name is Irwin Thomas. He's amazing. Um, and he has really supported me in growing and, and like nurturing that inner little me that needed support. So.
0: You know, you have a lot of very, I would say, kind of non-mainstream ideas and and motifs that you work within. Um, I think when I was younger, I probably would have listened to you and and, and not been able to connect to it as much because I grew up in a kind of a more logical, scientific, Mm -hmm. mainstream culture. I, I imagine you get that from clients and from people that you work with where you're pretty far out there. You know, mm-hmm. you you go pretty far away from the, the 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 main trunk of the tree. How do you help people bridge that gap or see the value in something that is non mainstream, that is a little bit counterculture, that's a little bit farther out? Do you do you deal with that resistance, or do you just think I'm I'm just not for those people who can't reach that far out?
1: You know, I think that resistance comes from. Our adult brain getting in the way of that, like child wonder brain that we all come here with, right? And so there's this blockage that does occur as we get older around things that seem a little bit like less black and white, a little bit less empirical, um, a little bit less clinical, right? And so I think that I love bridging that gap with people because there's a wound there too. Right? right. If we can't open the door and get you to connect with your spiritual self and play in that curiosity and in that energy, um, you know, there there's a wound there and we can work through that. Um, right. So I know it seems a little out there. But I think I don't want to say I'm not I don't want to say there are people I'm just not for. Um, right. I just think eventually people get to a point on their journey where it does work for them.
0: So so how do you know? whether someone needs to do their inner child work or not?
1: I would argue that everybody needs to do it. Um, even mm-hmm. people who I think grew up in, you know, what we would define as the healthiest of households, right? There's always space for us to go back to our younger selves and fill in the gaps because our parents are human beings. They're not gonna be perfect no matter what. Um, and and we shouldn't expect them to be. Um, but when we're little, that that is the expectation that's what we're hoping for and so by the nature of being human our parents create wounds no matter how well meaning they are and mm-hmm. as no one knows them better than we do and so as we get older you start to notice patterns whether it's like people pleasing behavior or difficulties with you know feeling certain about your identity or feeling like you need to earn joy or you know feeling disconnected from the capacity to have fun and play. Um, and so as those things come up, a lot of people will be like, okay, I want to go through like a CBT model and I want to go through a workbook and I want to, you know, manage the thoughts and behaviors. I find that if we can seed them, if we can source them, then we don't have to do that. 12 week CBT model over and over over the course of however many years we can go Mm -hmm. back and do it once and really reparent that part of ourselves that needs it.
0: Um, Yeah. You've already said something that, that you touched on uh, two ways that my childhood wounding shows up in my life about the play. mm -hmm. My very, my, my my first question to you was kind of re centered me in the childhood wounding and even the idea of dance that, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's probably of all the things that I would associate with my inner child it's the thing that he is most ashamed of doing. I'm 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 virtually unwilling to dance anywhere which I'm just naming it and bringing it up and it brings me to this next question so that we don't go off onto my inner child work at length during this podcast that'll be for <laughs> another time. What does it look like to do inner child work? What does inner child work look like from your perspective?
1: It looks incredibly beautiful and messy all at the same time, right? Because there's, you get this, there's two worlds that come up. There's the joyful, like I'm going to be dancing and drawing and, you know, having my hands in the dirt, like all of those things that perhaps grounded you as a child. And that differs for everybody. Um, And in the work that we do, we source those things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's the fun stuff, right? But inner child work also looks like The part of you that's like, got your knees tucked into your chest in the corner and is afraid to move, right? Mm -hmm. The part of you that's throwing a tantrum, but doesn't feel like anybody's listening. You know, the part of you that might feel afraid to express your emotions because your parents' emotions were so big, where was the room for yours? So inner child work has the capacity to be so exciting and so fun, but also really deep and gritty. Um... And so I think in my work with clients, I try to prepare them for both. When the gritty, deep stuff comes up that can sometimes send us flying off into the ether, right? Mm-hmm. That's when we deeply connect to the joy-based stuff, the dancing, mm-hmm. the drawing, the putting your hands in the dirt, the just, you know, all of those little things that we did when we were kids.
0: I noticed on your social media, I think the first thing that, that was, I, I found compelling about you is you were unapologetic. In, in speaking, you know, when you read, you you read ch- children's stories to to your audience. And I, I, f- I found that to be so compelling and so authentic. Um, and I know I may have already asked this question, so maybe I'll end up deleting this part. But uh, that just seemed to me takes a lot of strength. And I don't know if you can speak to kind of where you got that strength to be able to be unapologetically in tune and in touch with your inner child and the inner child of the people that you're talking to?
1: I love Is that it, a silly it, question? No, I think it's a beautiful question. Um, I think the strength comes from apologizing for so long. Mm. I think my evolution into what you describe as unapologetic, which like makes me feel super fiery and excited inside, Mm. um, comes from spending my life moving as a living apology. Mm. And at some point that began to hurt me and it began to put me in situations where I allowed others to hurt me. And I think, I needed to show up for myself there was this there's this big moment where i could feel myself watching me live my life versus mm-hmm. living it myself and in that moment i was like oh who's in the driver's seat right and how do i get in the driver's seat um and really show up for myself and start to steer this thing in a direction that feels aligned and feels authentic and um So I had no choice, honestly, to be unapologetic because it's about a reclamation for me, Mm. um, of me.
0: Yeah. I love that. Do you feel with men and women, Mm -hmm. do you find that there are, are they more alike in their inner child work? Are there distinct, unique themes that seem to come up for men versus for women? I know in my work with, when I work with, with, clients and in, inner in child work. Most of the work is with women mm-hmm. because a lot of the men aren't coming to, to therapy. Um, but I, I was just wondering if, if there are, if they're more alike, if there's not a really uh, distinguishing theme, or do you find different themes between the genders?
1: I do find that there's a lot of overlap, way more than people expect. It's just mm-hmm. that, the, that the behaviors manifest differently. Um, so, for example, if you have a wound around needing to care for the emotional well-being of your parent. Right? The like the client who identifies as a woman, that might manifest in more like fawning behaviors, right? Like I want mm-hmm. to make you feel good about yourself. I want to feed your ego. I want to make sure that, you know, you're feeling safe in yourself so that I can feel safe. Right? With my male-identifying clients, it's more like I'm going to be, quote-unquote, the man of the house, right? And that keeps coming up. A parentified male-identified child is going to do more of the, like, you know, I'm making sure that my mom's car is cleaned out and is running. I'm going to stand in the grocery line for her. Um, Things like that that are more, like, active Physical things I find that show up for my male-identified clients, and but it has the same emotional impact, right. that compromise of comfort in service of the convenience of the parent. Um, it does show up in different ways for the masculine and the feminine, but it does have the yeah. same impact overall.
0: Yeah, kind of what I'm hearing is the expression of it has a feminine or a masculine style, but mm-hmm. the core wounding is overlapping tremendously, if not the same. I love it. Yeah. Then how does one know? How do you know when someone is done with their inner child work?
1: So in the same way that children develop, right, inner child work just develops. It just looks different over time, right? So I think the first phase of inner child work really looks like going back and just creating the connection with that inner little you. That's like step one. Then you start to listen. Then you start to learn from them and also to reparent them. Once you've completed those steps, you land in this space of like, okay, cool, we've got this connection. How am I going to leverage this connection in a way that helps me break patterns now? And that's where some of the really challenging work comes in because you're like, okay, perhaps I was raised by a narcissistic parent, right? Uh Mm-hmm. I know, I know now all of the ways in which that impacted me. How am I mirroring those wounds out into the world now? Mm -hmm. How am I repeating those patterns? Even if I might not be, you know, full blown NPD, right? I still have the fleas and I'm still shedding them. And Mm -hmm. so when that second phase comes is when people really start to, to find challenge. Right. And some people will call it shadow work. Some people will call it all sorts of things. But really what it is, is like, okay, I now know what the wounds are. Can I figure out the ways in which they are contributing to me, wounding both myself and others and engaging in toxic patterns? Um, Because this is this work is really about accountability and authenticity. Right. You can blame your parents all day. But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to heal not your fault what happened to you learning right. that is step one step two is taking responsibility for the ways in which it impacts you now
0: i love that idea i love that you stated the idea that it's our responsibility because so much of my work is psychodynamic and attachment based mm-hmm. encouraging people to look back but they think that they'll get stuck there yes, in this blame victim kind of uh, archetype right instead of realizing that it's a it's a it's a thing to, to, to work through and to become responsible for.
1: Yeah, this, this concept of like, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility is not original to me uh, at all. It's nice. the, I think I mentioned him earlier, but like my spiritual mentor, um, I call him Baba Fasanmi, but his name is Erwin Thomas. He sat down with me one day and was like, okay, yeah, you've been through some stuff. None of that is your fault. But all of the ways in which you need to work on yourself to let it go—all of that's your responsibility. Because right. I was stuck in this space of like, "Oh, but I'm so wounded. I'm right. the victim," and that's not an empowered space to be. Why do I want to live there? I don't, and right. I don't think anybody else does.
0: It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I think that'll be very good because a lot of the, the the a lot of my audiences is are mothers who are dealing with with struggling children. They're they're pretty good at taking responsibility for their child's problems and issues Mm -hmm. and they stay stuck in that half of it. Like I caused it and therefore I have to stay in this, this kind of spiritual psychological prison for the rest of my child's life because I've done this, this unfixable damage to my child. So talking about it from your perspective, I think can offer them a way to think about it, to dislodge themselves from that, that prison that they put themselves in.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking about my own mom, right? When I first told my mom that I was getting therapy and that I was going into a treatment program for some childhood trauma stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Her first reaction was so much guilt, so much shame, so much, oh my God, this is my fault, right? Mm -hmm. And I had to explain to her, like, no, it, this That's not what this is about, right? Like, you did the best you could with your tools and your resources. I know that. Mm-hmm. But it just turns out that that wasn't the right fit for me in some instances. And right. I'm not blaming her for any of it. I don't blame any of my parents for any of the things. Um because I genuinely and truly believe that they were doing the best with the tools they have. And sometimes they got shoddy tools, right. right, From their parents. And that's how this becomes this intergenerational cycle. Um, And you know what? She must've done something right because I got to a space where I could work on myself. Right. And she didn't get that opportunity when she was my age. So I am doing the work because my parents created space for that even if they weren't perfect
0: yeah in a lot of ways I think like the children in our in our our teenage uh, wilderness program I think about it the same way that in a lot of ways they're they're acting out behavior the symptomatic behavior is is the, the maybe the first time in generations where um, there was even if it's not a direct and clear path there was a path to start to express, how things weren't working and things needed to change. Mm-hmm. And so when parents are beating themselves up because their children are struggling, I'm like, the, the struggle is at least a voice. It's at least your child saying in some way, things aren't working for me. And it reminds me of what you're talking about that that if parents are are, are at fault for for the mistakes that they make, then they also then they can deserve some credit for those those wounds to be expressed mm-hmm. in any way, especially in a healthy way, like what you're talking about.
1: absolutely. If your kid gets to the point where they're like, I feel like it happens in every family. There's at some point someone decides, "Nope, I'm going to express all the stuff." And that person is the mirror for the family. They're speaking all right. to all of the wounds that generations and generations and generations have been suppressing for forever, right? right? And so it feels terrifying in the moment. It feels extra challenging because all of the things that you're struggling with, with your kid are also things that like really feel like a mirror for you and are probably triggering you. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible opening for healing. You cannot heal an infection if you keep trying to, you know, heal over the wound versus actually heal the wound from the bottom up.
0: Right, right.
1: And that's what we're doing.
0: Do you, maybe this question is just ignorant. Do you find that, that inner child work, that there's an age at which it starts to become more meaningful, like, you know, we don't do inner child work per se, or, or maybe that's just my assumption with younger children, because mm-hmm. we're just doing child work, then, right? Like they are present with us. Is there an age that you find that it's becomes effective to start thinking about and talking about the concept of an inner child and an age at which it starts to not make as much sense based on how how young they are
1: yeah this is one of those really cool spaces where uh spirituality and science intersect um so the brain apparently stops developing at around 26 right we're an adult by that point i don't want to say stops developing you become an adult at around 26 right that's also when um astrologically you're going through your saturn return which is like considered one of the most challenging um, astrological transits you could go through. It happens between the ages of like, um, you're going to hit it around like 28 and it goes into like 31, 30. Right. Yeah. And um, that's when all of the stuff from your past is brought to the surface to see if you've learned your lessons. And I feel like that's also really what happens between the ages of like 26, And 32 or 33 years old, where you're building your adult life, right? This is the first moment in a lot of young people's lives where they're truly on their own. They're really like building their own relationships beyond college, beyond high school. They're building their relationships with their um, co-workers, colleagues, um, you know, leadership at work. All of those things really come to a head in those years when our brain is technically an adult, when we're going through our Saturn return, and when we're really landing in this adult role. Um, And so I feel like that's the sweet spot, right, is like, you're going to start to notice what your loops are, what your um, behavior patterns are at that point, because they're going to start having actual consequential impact in your life. And uh-huh. so when that starts to happen, people are like, wait a minute, why do I have so many challenges with authority at work? What is that? Or, uh-huh. you know, why do I struggle to stay in my own identity and relationships? Uh-huh. Um, so when those things start to come up, that's when I'm like, hey, this is the moment. Let's uh-huh. go back and visit that little inner you and figure out where this programming came from. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what our brains are for that entire first 26 years is these little computers that download all the programming that's thrown at us. So the right. way I like to look at it is like, okay, let's go back. Let's look at the code. Let's figure out where the error is or where the challenge is. And maybe we need to add something. Maybe we need to rewrite something. But whatever right. it is, we right. can
0: do. Wonderful. The, the next question I have is, you know, a question I get, asked a lot in the work that I work with individuals, how do you manage, how do you teach people how to manage the inevitable shifts that will happen in in relationships as they engage in this work? Mm. Maybe you can talk about it from a personal perspective or, you know, the, the kind of facilitation you do with clients.
1: So the best piece of advice that I can give in that regard is to have a community. We cannot heal in isolation. And um, things are going to come up, things are going to be really challenging. You're going to look at your partner and be like, yo, did I make this choice from a healed space or a wounded space? Would I make it again from a healed space? I don't know. Um, right. And so as you're working through the inevitable, um, oh my God, is this life mine? Or did I just you know, let people throw things at me and just live it on their terms? Um, you're going to need people to ground you and you're going to need some checks and balances built into your your space so have a really mm-hmm. trusted community um, in my case I was super blessed that I had that I had you know I was surrounded by really powerful mentors and and my family was was supportive um, so I, I had that um, and I also have a great and supportive partner and so I was constantly talking through things with people right so that's mm-hmm. one thing um, the other thing is, is have a creative outlet. Um, our inner child is inherently creative. I've never met a little kid that doesn't know how to do something creative, whether it's like mm-hmm. drawing or painting or dancing or singing or what you know, making up stories. Find right. whatever that thing is, and use it as a way to channel some of the the real difficulties that are going to come up in your relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, The other thing is don't make any decisions about relationships from an activated space. Sometimes Mm. when you're doing this work, it's going to feel electric. You can feel it in your body. Don't make any choices from that space Mm -hmm. because, you know, at that, at that 26 to 33 sweet spot, those choices have consequences now. So Mm -hmm. really let yourself get grounded and settled, wait for that electricity to feel less buzzy and then talk with a trusted friend or mentor and really make a decision from a grounded place. But you are going to have to make decisions. You are going to realize, okay, there are people in my life that I chose based on my wounds. There's nothing wrong with those people, but I just can't feed those relationships anymore because they they're feeding on my pain. Yeah. And then you have to make, you know, transitions in that way.
0: Always. It seems like when it comes to supporting people in treatment, or excuse me, when it comes to supporting people in this work, uh, why do you prefer using a coaching model over therapy?
1: So I think that the coaching model is particularly powerful in this work for layers of reasons. The primary layer is that, with therapy, you need to have a diagnostic code and a treatment plan, right? And I don't think that, um, you know, a diagnosis is really helpful in this particular work, right? Especially Mm -hmm. because there's so many versions of the inner little you who might have all different wounds that they're working on. And so whatever diagnosis I would put on a treatment plan, for the purposes of insurance or whatever is not always going to hold true. Um, and I also find that people with identity wounds, which most people have an inner child wound around identity will latch onto a diagnosis and it's distracting from the work. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is one piece. The second piece is that, um, you know, some of the modalities that we can use to do this work are not, you know, super, um, Insuranceable, if that makes sense, right? Well, so, yeah, I like you know, that word. I, I find it um, really challenging to, to work within the confines of a clinical box all the time. Because mm-hmm. if we're working on these wounds, they are spiritual wounds, they're soul wounds. Um, and I have to be able to talk about them that way in order to be as effective as I can possibly be. And I just can't mm-hmm. talk about them that way inside the clinical box.
0: Right. That's wonderful. I want to ask you about your reading books to people online Mm -hmm. because that's something you do as a practice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, again, that was one of the moments when I was introduced to you by a mutual friend. And, and when I saw that uh, again, I was, I, I was taken by how powerful and compelling it was, how it drew me in. What, where did that come from? Is that something that somebody told you or taught you? Is it something that just came natural out of this work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just speaking to a little bit about that practice.
1: So a super honest answer. Okay. Um, When I was young, I have a a brother that's two and a half years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the environment in our household was really challenging to be in. And it could be really scary for him. And so when those scary moments were happening, I would take my brother into our room. And I would shut the door and I would read to him until the scary moments Mm. were over. Wow. And I also found in my evolution through my own experiences that like reading was extremely grounding for me. Mm. Um, I know that some people talk about like compulsive reading as a dissociative coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was very like, okay, I'm safe in my body. Whatever's going on outside, doesn't matter because we're in the book world now. Right. Safe. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that when I was a high school teacher, I noticed that a lot of my kids were acting out in ways that would suggest that they have inner child wounds. If I got mm-hmm. them all to sit down in a circle and I read a book to them, the shift in the energy in the room was immense right there's something very nurturing and nourishing about being read to yeah um and i want to give that to people in any way possible all the time um so that's where the reading came from it was just this feeling i had that people needed it
0: i remember that in 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 elementary school that my my favorite, well some of my favorite times were being read to, and I don't know why adults don't do that more in those kinds of settings because it was it was so soothing, it was so it was so parental. Yes. For them to do that. It felt wonderful. I loved it.
1: I also think there's this incredible like human programming component to it, right? Like our ancestors all everything was told in these like folk tales by word of mouth right that's how right. all the stories started ever um yeah. and i i think there's got to be like some instinctive like dna level comfort that comes in listening to a story because that's what our ancestors did all the time to pass the time to connect with one another to share survival stories
0: right beautiful i i've noticed you've written that you 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 work with people that are with grown-ups that are lost with with people that grow up in toxic environments and chaotic environments and how we could become kind of drawn to that. Can you speak to that work and how you think about it and how you facilitate growth in those areas? So
1: one of the, one of the things I talk about a lot on my Instagram is this idea of a chaos addiction, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, when we are children and we grow up in environments that are unpredictable, perhaps a little bit volatile and negative, perhaps there's fighting, perhaps there's um, just overall tumult in the environment, that's what becomes familiar to us. And brains are naturally drawn to what is familiar. As we develop and we get older, that familiarity can become a real problem. Because as we build relationships, as we engage in the world, we are drawn to things that are toxic. And so on my page, I'll call it toxic familiarity, right? Like, even though we know that this might not be good for us, we're drawn to it because we're addicted to those chemicals that come up in our brain when we are feeling afraid, when we are feeling uncertain, unsure, unsafe. Um, And so when you see an adult who sent, who tends to be cycling through like maybe the same toxic partners or maybe the same toxic behaviors. To me, that says that there's some sort of addiction there to the chaos, right. Of their childhood. And they're working it out Mm -hmm. or trying to work it out via these reenactments as adults.
0: Uh, As a, as a kind of an aside, I don't know if you've, I referenced it in the audacity to be you, but there's a study out of Columbia where they take mice and they shock them,
1: mm.
0: baby mice, and they shock half of the, the 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 sample. They shock by baby mice sitting by themselves in a cage. And the other half, the the baby mouse is, is nestling with the mother and they shock it. And they pair the shock with a peppermint oh. scent. And then later on when the mice grow up, they expose them to mazes where there are scents and different tubes that they would go down or tunnels that they would go down. And what they find is that the mice that were shocked in the in the cages by themselves never go to the to the peppermint ever. Mm. But the my the mice that were shocked while nestling with their mothers always go to the peppermint. Yeah. Because attachment trumps trauma. If it's like the way you said if it's familiar, then at least they're going to know, at least they're going to be taken care of in, in, in the unconscious mind. At least it's something that comes w- you know comes with it a sense, some sense even if it's in the face of chaos and trauma, some sense of safety. And I think that's a really good kind of scientific explanation of what you just described.
1: Yeah, I think it's just an incredibly powerful behavior driver, right? And when our bonding chemicals commingle with our survival and fear chemicals, Mm. that cocktail is very dangerous. right? And if we don't catch it and work through it, it can really it can really wreak havoc on our lives, on our relationships.
0: One of the things that, that I noticed that you do is you use tarot cards. And and that might be really far out there for a lot of my audience. But I, I was wondering your thoughts about using tarot cards when you have a background in and in an education in, in psychotherapy.
1: So the first thought is that, you know, when I was a kid, right, everything felt magical to me. I understood that the trees had... An energy. I understood that the flowers had an energy. I understood all of these things. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until, you know, I started to get older. I started to have some more of that, like Catholic influence in my life, some more of that deeply religious influence in my life that I started to be like, wait a minute. So maybe this is scary. Maybe I should be, you know, distancing myself from this. And so the evolution of that, um, a reclamation of the part of me that knows that this whole experience of life is magical right. beginning to end. Um, and so that's that piece of it. Tarot for me, I was resistant to it myself for a while um, because I was like, what, if, What? I don't know. I don't really trust that these cards can tell me my future. What does that mean? And it wasn't until I took a course, I just was like, let me learn. Because for some reason, my spirit keeps pulling me to this you know, thing that I don't understand. So let me just take a right. class. Um, and I took a class and and it really helped me see tarot as more of a bridge that I can use to have a conversation with myself than some sort of like future telling tool, right? Right. Um, and so the way that I leverage tarot with my clients is less like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm using some supernatural capacity to connect with, Some supernatural energy. It's like, no, I'm using these motifs, these images to help us build a bridge between you now, who's very stuck in this like logical, concrete, you know, way of thinking, and your magical wonder inner child, who is still in that, you know, world of imagination of everything is magical.
0: Do you have a do you have a book or books that you would recommend to people for for some of the work that you do besides the one that you're going to write and that's going to come out someday and then you'll come back when you've when you finished it? Do you have a book that you recommend to people for this work?
1: Yes. Um. So there's a book called Homecoming by John Bradshaw that I love. Um. I cried a lot in the in the first you know very beginning. I was like, oh my goodness, I have so much work to do. Um. Mm-hmm. And so that book it's a little dated, but it's super powerful. And I, I, that's the first book I always recommend to people. Um, and then there's another book, um, called codependent no more that I, that I like a lot. Melody beauty. Um, there's another book called the adult children of emotionally immature parents, which I also really like a lot. Um, by Lindsay Gibson and, um, so those are some books that I really like that are are very concrete and and based in in some of that more clinical leaning no. um, like lens, right? They're based in some of that more clinical ideology. Um, no. but John Bradshaw's book really pulls in a little bit of that spirit stuff. If you're willing to go a little bit in the other direction and kind of deep dive into um, some of the spirituality behind a lot of this,. Um, you can, there's a book called um, The Woman Who Glows in the Dark by Elena mm. Avila, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book called The Healing Wisdom of Africa by Maladoma mm-hmm. Patrice Patrisome. Um, mm. And so those books, I really feel like they're less like obviously about inner child work, but you read them and you really realize like, oh, this was the thing I needed.
0: Right. This was
1: the thing I was missing, especially um, in The Woman Who Glows in the Dark, she talks about something called susto, which um, means soul loss. Um, and she's a curandera and she's also a nurse. Um, so she talks about something called soul loss. And soul loss and inner child work are essentially the same thing. Um, you're going right. back to past versions of yourself to make yourself whole. Right. Um, and so I know we all credit Young with the inner child concept, but I really think he just put his name on an incredible indigenous healing modality Mm -hmm. that has existed for thousands of years.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Mm -hmm. And to tell people where they can find you and your work.
1: Yes. Um, So I am on Instagram. Um, I am at lovechildbtx. Um, I am also, you can go to my website um, at lovechildbotanics.com. Those are the two places you can find me.
0: And I would recommend that people... Pause the podcast right now and go and and follow you there because you got have great content. Thank you. And I'd really be excited for some of our audience to share that. The last thing I want to ask you is your own challenges with self care, Mm -hmm. um, how you do it, what you do, so that you have the capacity to be there for the people that you love and serve. What are your practices of self care and your challenges with self care, and the work that you need to do for yourself?
1: So my practices of self care, I. I'm an artist. Um, I love to paint. I love to draw. That is part of how I help to heal my inner child. Um, and it's a big part of my self care practice. Um, so big, in fact, that if I don't draw, I can really actually feel myself energetically drain. Mm. Um, and I think my biggest challenge is that I tend to become very task oriented, um, such that I neglect myself, right? So I'm like, okay, I have a million and five things to do and I am not allowed, and this is my inner child wound, I am not Mm. allowed to take care of myself until Mm. all of the things are done. And so I really have to, it got to the point where I had to leave literal post-its for myself, like eat something, drink some water, like Mm. go draw something. Because if I didn't do that, I was going to get lost in this productivity wound I have. Um, And so, yeah, drawing is really powerful for me. Dance is really powerful for me. I, like you, struggle to trust my body to move in a way that made me feel safe and empowered. And um, so I practice that by myself a lot.
0: Mm. Um,
1: I'll put on music, I'll shut the door, and I'll just dance by myself.
0: (laughs) I promise as a result of talking today, I'm going to try to practice by myself. Yes. A little bit of that uh, movement. Because um, I know that there's wounding and I know there's healing there in, in, in my body.
1: Yes. And honestly, if I could make a suggestion.
0: You can. That's what you're here for.
1: Okay. So the thing that we get caught up in with dancing is seeing ourselves and judging ourselves. There's a judgment right. wound there. Right? right. If you can find a safe, open space, whether it's outdoors or like in the middle of a room, right, where there's nothing that you can hurt yourself on. Right. Try blindfolding yourself.
0: Hmm.
1: Take the sight element away. Just listen to the music and move your body.
0: Right. I'll do it. You have my commitment. (laughs) Well, Tiffany, it's very nice to meet you. So nice. And very nice. I'm so grateful for our friend who introduced us and to, to learn about it and just feel and hear your work. I'm so glad you're willing to come on the podcast today.
1: I'm so glad that you invited me I'm very grateful um, so thank you you be by-